Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph, which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Welcome to episode 74 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. After my first break from the podcast in almost a year and a half and the successful negotiation of mountains with the family, I get back to an enormous pile of financial crime news. I think it's safe to say the summer is well and truly over. The wealth of news comes from sanctions and money laundering, but the failure to prevent fraud issue in the UK has come back to the news this week. Of course, we'll also round up this week's cyber attack news. As usual, I flagged the main stories in the podcast and highlighted them in the description. We'll start this week's news with sanctions. Beginning in the United Kingdom, where there's been a broad range of announcements as it happens. First, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, has announced that WISE payments, or WISE, breached the Russian sanctions regime in June 2022 by permitting a withdrawal of funds by a designated person, or a person linked to a designated person. The DP was added at 11.05am on the 29th of June 2022, with WISE subsequently adding the DP to its sanctions list shortly afterwards. At 7.25am on the 30th of June 2022, an employee of the DP's company withdrew £250 in cash using a debit card. I feel there's something significant in that 250 quid. By making the payment, Wise breached Regulation 12 of the Russia regulations. Despite the clear breach, Ofsi did not regard it as one which was sufficiently serious to warrant the imposition of a monetary penalty, instead using its disclosure enforcement power for the first time. This power, which was introduced by the Economic Crime Transparency and Enforcement Act 2022, uh, takes and actually takes the form of an amendment to Section 149 of the Policing and Crime Act 2017, gives OFSI the power to, quote, publish reports at such intervals as it considers appropriate in cases where a monetary penalty has not been imposed, but the Treasury is satisfied on the balance of probabilities that a person has breached a prohibition or failed to comply with an obligation that is imposed by or under financial sanctions legislation. In Wise's favour were the following first, the transaction value was low. Secondly, the breach was picked up by Wise relatively soon after it occurred. Thirdly, Wise self-reported, demonstrating a clear willingness to cooperate. Fourthly, there was no evidence from all the circumstances that sanctions were being deliberately evaded. And finally, WISE took remedial action in respect of its systems and controls. Linked to the notice and the off-sea blog post announcing the use of its disclosure enforcement power can be found in the podcast description. A few more stories from Offsea this week, the first being not entirely unrelated to the news from the WISE san uh, sanctions breach. Offsea has announced an update to its guidance on enforcement and monetary penalties for breaches of financial sanctions. The update to the guidance is pursuant to its statutory obligation to do so. Secondly, OFSI has also updated its guidance on the annual frozen asset review and that quotes all persons that hold or control funds or economic resources belonging to a designated person at DP to complete a reporting form and submit it to the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation by Friday 10th November 2023. Links 
to both sets of updated guidance can be found in the podcast description. Thirdly and finally from Offsea, it's also updated the list of cyber designated persons or DPs. The individuals, all Russian nationals, are linked to cyber attacks allied to the invasion of Ukraine. Links to the notice, the ransomware and sanctions guidance and the updated list of cyber designated persons can be found in the podcast description. Before we leave the UK, there's one more sanctions story, this time from the Financial Conduct Authority, which has announced the findings of its review into firms, systems and controls. The FCA, quotes, engaged in a substantial programme of work assessing the systems and controls relating to sanctions compliance for over 90 firms across a range of sectors. This has involved proactive assessment of firms' controls using a new analytics-based tool, as well as the use of specific intelligence and reporting. The work identified examples of good practice as well as areas for improvement under five key themes. Those key themes were, first of all, governance and oversight, secondly, skills and resources, thirdly, screening capabilities, fourthly, customer due diligence, and fifthly, reporting of breaches to the Financial Conduct Authority. The link to the document is in the podcast description. Away from the UK now, and we look towards the European Union, where there have been outcomes from challenges to designated person status by Russians subject to sanctions by the bloc. Now, this is something that's been happening a lot recently. There have been challenges in the UK, which we've reported on in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. There have also been challenges in the US. The European Court of General Jurisdiction has allowed a claim by Alexander Shulgin to be removed from the designated persons list, while less successful in their challenge were Gennady Timchenko and Dmitry Pompiansky, who failed in their claims to have themselves removed from the designated persons list. It may be that Timchenko and Pompiansky challenge the decision. We'll stay with the European Union for another sanctions story, and it's news that the European Commission has published guidance to aid European operators to identify, assess and understand the possible risks of sanctions circumvention. While it has an EU perspective, as one might expect, having read through it on Friday morning, I tend to the view that the guidance would also be useful to any entity wishing to manage sanctions risk. So the link to it, if you want to have a look at it, if you work in sanctions, is in the podcast description. The final piece of sanctions news this week, I told you it was quite a hefty wedge of sanctions news. The final Sanctions news this week is from the United States, where the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, has sanctioned Abdul Rahim Hamdan Dagalo, I think I got that right, the Sudanese paramilitary leader, as well as sanctioning individuals and entities believed to be supporting the weapons of mass destruction program in North Korea. Links to the OFAC press releases are in the podcast description. Right, that's it for fraud this week. We'll now turn our attention... uh, So no, that's it for sanctions. We'll now turn our attention to fraud. The main fraud news this week comes from the United Kingdom, where two prominent stories have been doing the rounds. First, the Public Accounts Committee of the United Kingdom Parliament, the PAC as it's known, has published its report on local authority-administered COVID support schemes in England. The range of COVID recovery support provided by the United Kingdom Kingdom government as part of its COVID response 
was administered through a range of bodies, including through local authorities. This report examines the implementation of the schemes and the fraud involved in the scheme with reflection on the efforts to recover funds fraudulently obtained. While much of it we've already trailed in the reviews we've undertaken on previous reports from the Public Accounts Committee, especially in relation to forgiveness being provided in respect of the need for speed at the start of the pandemic. But once more, from this report, as there has been with several other reports in this area, there are echoes of criticism in relation to the poor job made of recovering funds which ought not to have been paid, either because of fraud or some other reason that the money should not have been paid. Now, the headline figure from the report in relation to the initial £1.1 billion which was paid out up to May the 20th, sorry, up to May 2020, which was, of course, was two months into the, lock pand the pandemic lockdown. Now, this £1.1 billion that was paid out, now whether it was through error or because of fraud, of that £1.1 billion, pounds, only £20.9 has been recovered by May this year. So three years later, only £20.9 has been recovered. Now, as I've already indicated, this isn't the first time that the government has rightly come in for criticism on recovery of funds unlawfully or incompetently obtained during the uh, financial response to COVID. However, nothing seems to be sticking and little additional effort appears to be taken. Um, real effort, genuine effort appears to be, be being taken to recover the funds, whether for fraud on the schemes or, for that matter, against those firms which supplied dodgy personal protective equipment to the National Health Service. I'm frankly at the point of wondering what it will take to sharpen the government's focus. Now, if you want to take a look at the report, it's relatively short. I mean, these things are typically very long, but this one is unusually quite short by comparison. Then the link is in the podcast description. The other piece of fraud news, and I suppose it's fraud news, so I've lumped it into this, also comes from the European, no it doesn't, it comes from the United Kingdom Parliament, where this week the House of Commons voted down amendments made by the House of Lords, despite a plea, certainly in one case, by Transparency International, that they embrace what the Lords had done on transparency of ownership, because they, the House of Lords had made some amendments to the bill that was going through Parliament to try and beef up or strengthen the ownership transparency principles. Nevertheless, the Commons voted them down, voted these amendments down. In addition to the transparency amendments, the Lords amendments which proposed a broadening of the failure to prevent fraud offence to a wider range of corporations, removing the limitation on larger firms, and the extension of the offence to include other things, for example money laundering, they were also voted down as well. The reason for the amendments being rejected varies if you read the transcript from Hansard. Uh, that amendments can be made if needed in the future by statutory instrument, which I'm always a bit reluctant about. It doesn't get the same level of oversight as a primary statute. Anyway, they feel that is necessary. The government certainly feels at the moment that that's necessary. Further, in respect of the extension of strict liability money to money laundering, it was felt, the government certainly felt, that that was already covered by the current 
anti-money laundering regime. Now, I do agree that the anti-money laundering regime in the United Kingdom is relatively strong. We certainly come out well when we have our mutual evaluation report from the Financial Action Task Force. But I half wonder whether there might be some merit in that extension of strict liability to money laundering. But it's not to be for the time being. Link to the order paper detailing the business for the day, which was the day of the vo vote, which was the 4th of September 2023, which contains reasons for the approach, together with the entreaty by Transparency International, which you can also read. They're all at the links, the respective links in the podcast description. Now, away from fraud and to money laundering, since we just mentioned it now, much of it again, much of the money laundering news this, week's again, this week again comes from the United Kingdom. First, the Joint Money Laundering Steering Group, the JMLSG, has published an updated version of Chapter 22, Part 2 of its Anti-Money Laundering, or AML, and Countering the Terrorist Financing, or CTF, guidance. This part specifically relates to crypto asset transfers and the travel rule. Link to that is in the podcast description. The United Kingdom's Financial Intelligence Unit, the National Crime Agency, has published its SARS Reporter Booklet for August 2023. Case studies in this edition focus on fraud, drugs and vulnerable persons, and you can find the link to it in the podcast description. The UKFIU has also announced that the new SARS Reporter regime will be open to all reporting organisations from the 18th of September 2023. Reporting organisations not yet registered should do so as soon as possible i get the final piece of money laundering news this week before i get on to a kind of another big announcement that was made a bit later in the week i just want to point you to a blog post from the international monetary fund which discusses the risks to financial stability posed by money laundering frankly this is a story as old as time itself and you can have it as bedtime reading by following the link at the podcast description. Two other bits and then we'll move on to a bit of bribery and anti-corruption news this week. First, the Financial Conduct Authority has announced a review of how firms treat domestic politically exposed persons or PEPs. Links to the documents and the terms of reference set for the review can be found in the podcast description. The second story is from the Gambling Commission and further action which has been taken against In Touch Games Limited. Now, this story takes us back to episode 43 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, which was in January this year, where it was reported that corporate social responsibility and anti-money laundering failings resulted in a fine of £6.1 million. Well, this week, the Gambling Commission went further and suspended InTouch Games Limited's licence since, quotes, it is suspected the operator failed to follow licence conditions related to money laundering, fair and transparent terms and practices, and reporting of key events. Link to the January press release relating to the fine and this week's press release relating to the, to the suspension of its licence can be found in the podcast description. Now we turn our attention to a bit of bribery and corruption news. We start in the European Union where La Rentrée, the return of the political class to Brussels, sees the refocus on the 14-point reform plan created in the aftermath of the Qatar Gate corruption scandal. This week, the European Parliament's Committee on Constitutional Affairs was looking at the proposal in detail. 
linked to the committee's webpage together with a link to the 14-point plan itself can be found in the podcast description. When they report on the outcome, you'll certainly hear about it here. Now to a story which we first covered in episodes 42 and 49 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, which concerned the trial and conviction of one of two executives of Fox in relation to allegations of bribery and corruption over the acquisition of TV rights to football. This week, a further update where the convicted individual who was Hernan Lopez had a motion for acquittal granted in his favour, citing a recent decision of the US Supreme Court and the lack of a binding precedent for allegations of foreign commercial bribery. It's also been announced this week that the Dutch Fiscal Information and Investigation Service has become the newest member of the International Anti-Corruption Coordination Centre, the IACCC. From the website is the following. The International Anti-Corruption Centre, a coordination centre, brings together specialist law enforcement officers from multiple agencies around the world to tackle allegations of grand corruption. Grand corruption increases poverty and inequality, undermines good business and threatens the integrity of financial markets. The Memorandum of Understanding, which was signed on the 6th of September, and the link to the announcement can be found in the podcast description. Now, The final piece of bribery and corruption news this week is an announcement of the publication of Transparency International's impact report and accounts for 2022-2023. The link is in the podcast description. Now, a bit of general financial crime news that doesn't really come under anywhere, just pointing you in the direction of some stuff. Just before we then go head on into the cyber attack news this week... Now, we'll start on this kind of generic news with news that His Majesty's Revenue and Customs has published its Economic Crime Levy Manual. The Economic Crime Levy is the annual levy made of organisations supervised under the money laundering regulations. If the firm, in particular, has a UK revenue in excess of £10.2 million, The first draft, published on the 1st of September 2023, has already been amended. It was amended on the 4th of September 2023. Now, while not entirely in user-friendly format, it's a website with collapsible menus. It's really awful. We can only hope, I suppose, that it comes out as a PDF or a smart document at some point. But anyway, the link to the manual, together with HMRC's policy paper on the levy, which was published back in July this year, They can be found in the podcast description. As I said, the manual is not user-friendly, it's not pretty to look at, and it needs to be in a better format. The other bit of broader financial news this week is the delivery of a couple of speeches relevant to financial crime. First, by Sarah Pritchard, Executive Director of Markets and International at the Financial Conduct Authority to the Financial Crime Summit. In a broad-ranging speech, Pritchard reminded regulated firms, as if it really were needed, of the importance of staying alert to the threat of financial crime and of the forms in which it might present. Additionally, there's a bit of domestic politically exposed persons news and how on, on politically exposed persons in the domestic context and how they might generally be regarded as a lower risk level than non-domestic PEPs. The link to the speech is in the podcast description. The second speech, which I'll point you at, was delivered at the Cambridge Symposium on Economic Crime by the Serious Fraud Office's Chief Capability Officer, Michelle Crotty. 
In what was also, as might be expected, a broad-ranging speech, Crotty reflected on the last five years of the recently departed director of the SFO, Lisa Osofsky, as well as looking ahead to the expected royal assent being given to the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, which we mentioned earlier in the podcast where the House of Lords amendments had been voted down by the House of Commons. There are also in that speech thoughts on the powers that the bill will give to the SFO in its fight against financial crime. Link to the speech is in the podcast description. Now we wind up this week's edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast with a look at the cyber attack news. It's been a quiet week, relatively speaking. Of course, that doesn't mean to say cyber attacks have stopped. That would be a marvellous thing, but they haven't. It's merely probably that they haven't either been reported or that the victims simply haven't discovered that they have become a victim of a cyber attack. Anyway, we'll start in the UK, where there's been a bit of a scandal with some schools not returning at the beginning of September as they would typically do so because of some issue with certain type of concrete used in the construction of the schools. Well, crumbling classrooms are not the only headache for head teachers up and down the country, with a number of schools reporting cyber attacks, which have also delayed the start of term for a further week. Attacking schools a cyber attack on schools is not uncommon wherever you are in the world. They're a favoured target because of the perception and possibly the reality in some cases that they do not have the cyber defences which many corporates might have on their systems. Schools hold a good deal of sensitive personal data about children and, of course, their parents, with the consequence that they are a valuable source of funds for ransomware attackers. This has a knock-on effect for policymakers, of course, and the choices which need to be make, made in terms of spending commitments, even, I would say, the ring-fencing of funds specifically to provide rigorous cyber defences. I suppose there's a complex picture when you come to look at schools and where they get their funding, so that might be an issue. Anyway, I raise it as a thought. In terms of other news, Russian ransomware attackers have claimed responsibility for a range of cyber attacks. The Black Cat Cyber Group has claimed attacks on Tissue Path, a pathology company, Strata Plan, a corporate service provider, Barry Plant Blackburn, a real estate agency, and Tisha Liner FC Law, a business and property law firm. It claims to have almost five terabytes of data following the attacks. Research by Deloitte has found out that just under half of Swiss corporations have been the victim of cyber attacks. The data is drawn from input provided by 400 board members from a range of industries. I've seen this reported by various news agencies this week, but what strikes me is the degree of surprise that accompanies some of the coffee copy, or that Switzerland should have been some kind of special case. It isn't. It's not unique. And organisations in the country should be as prepared for cyber attacks across both the public and private sectors. As a bit of a follow-up to legacy cyber attack news now, it's been widely reported that thousands of documents have been taken from the Ministry of Defence following a cyber attack on a fencing contractor, Zorn Limited, which have been apparently posted to the dark web. While there is an official line, like I said, well, there is an official line, the Rural newspaper has reported that the documents may show how to access certain military and non-military sites. The other piece of legacy news relates to the December 2021 cyber attack on Gloucester City Council. This week, the Information Commissioner's Office issued a reprimand to the Council for its failure to implement appropriate technical and organisational measures properly to secure their systems. The link to the reprimand is in the podcast description. 
Now, the final piece of cyber attack news this week comes in the form of yet another article about the NATO Treaty, Article 5 and cyber attacks. NATO Treaty Article 5, of course, is the collective defence obligation for NATO members where there is attack, an attack on the NATO member. Now, the threat from cyber attack is well understood and even preferred, certainly I suppose in modern times, as a means of destabilisation by enemy agents of NATO. Consequently, the idea that an attack on a sovereign member of NATO in the form of a cyber attack could trigger Article 5, or the Article 5 collective defence obligation, is an interesting one. While it obviously wasn't envisaged at the signing of the NATO Treaty in 1949, an understandable review appears to be forming in the academic and policy sector concerned with the defence. The latest contribution to the debate is available in the podcast description. Well, that's it for this week's weighty episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again all being well next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.